electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl and Sarah, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Frank Collin in for the Judge Scott Wapner. Earnings are front and center this hour as the big bank kick off things in a very big way. And the Dow, it pulls back from a new all-time high. Our investment committee is standing by right here at Post 9 to break down all the moves. Joining us for the hour, Jenny Harrington, Joe Terranova, Brenda Vangelo, and Jim Labenfall. But first, let's get a check of the markets at noon Eastern. Uh, the Dow down right now about a half a percent, pulling back from its record high. The S&P, we are on record close watch. Right now, the number to watch is... 47.97, but as you can see, it is fractionally lower. The Nasdaq uh, moving to the downside, looking like it could break its winning streak. We'll continue to watch. We're also watching the yield on the 10-year Treasury right now, back below 4% at 3.95. Something we continue to watch after that cooler-than-expected PPI report. We'll talk much more about that later. But our focus right now is on earnings and on the banks. Uh, best place to start, I think, might be J.P. Morgan's broad ownership here. Joe, I'm going to start with you. Uh, record full-year earnings record full-year revenue, investment banking revenue up 3% year-over-year. What was your take? My take is there's J.P. Morgan and then there's the rest of the banks. And that's the story. That is the way it has been for the better part of the last 12 months. It's the reason why I own J.P. Morgan personally and in the Joe ETF, we've been underweight financials for the last year. It is so disappointing to see what the other banks are reporting relative to the strength that J.P. Morgan is reporting. Seven consecutive quarters of record net interest income. And there was no conversation about net interest income declining at J.P. Morgan like there was at Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo said net interest income could be down 9% in the coming year while Wells Fargo's expenses rise. So disappointing for all the other banks. I'm a little bit surprised at Citi. I thought the near-term momentum that Citi had, I thought, in fact, you'd see some buying demand surface. You're not seeing that. Basically, if you're stepping in and buying Citi, you're believing that CEO Jane Frazier's comments about 24 being a turnaround story, that that, in fact, could be correct. But Bank of America trading revenue declines uh, for fixed income, 5.8%. These other money center banks are just not delivering what J.P. Morgan is delivering on. Yeah, I think you might have a Citigroup believer down there on the other end of the desk. But I'm going to talk about J.P. Morgan a little bit longer with Brenda. What was your take on the quarter and also the comments from Jamie Dimon kind of on one hand saying the economy is strong, on the other hand, really spelling out a lot of, of geopolitical issues and macro issues? Well, I think on Jamie, uh, Jamie Dimon's comments, it, it's not unlike what we've heard from him over and over again, where he's expressed concern over various components of the macro environment or geopolitical um, environment. But when we look at the results from the bank, we look at the results about in his commentary about the consumer, they continue to be positive. I mean, one thing we also heard on the conference call is that they're seeing the consumer normalize, in their words. And, you know, that means 
there's not as much excess savings there, but the consumer is still healthy. But I think that's something to keep an eye on uh, because that's going to flow through to overall consumer spending. And we'll see if we're able to keep up with a year like we had last year, uh, where consumers really did spend a lot on things like travel. Uh, but I think overall, uh, we are pleased with the quarter, um, pleased with the commentary, but not surprising to hear Jamie Dimon's you know, cautious comments uh, because we've heard that over and over again. What did you make of J.P. Morgan and, in all fairness, Bank of America as well, saying, if not for that FDIC special fee, our results would have been this? Is that meaningful to you as an investor? I think it was, it, you know, it's... It's part of business in the current environment. It's known, um, and you know, it's a, a you know a function of the banking crisis that we had early early last year. So I think we can move on and, and move forward, um, and so not not terribly surprising, and certainly doesn't change our view of J.P. Morgan. Although I'll say that is our only exposure to banks um, is J.P. Morgan. So Jim, uh, you own J.P. Morgan. You also own Citigroup. Um, revenue miss, uh, EPS of 84 cents. Not even clear if that's comparable to estimates. In September, Jane Frazier said she's reorganizing. Now we know it's at least 20,000 layoffs, billion dollar uh, charge related to severances. My, my good friend Hugh Sun from CNBC.com, litany of charges. Yeah, uh, but it, it, frankly, expected. And when I say expected, why do I say that? It's because the stock trades at a 60% discount, excuse me, 40% discount to tangible book value. So the street already understands that whatever book value is, it's got to get knocked down by charges. And frankly, in that scheme of things, the size of the charges that we're talking about are actually minuscule, okay? So that if you actually got Citigroup up to tangible book value, you would see something like a 30% share appreciation from here, maybe 40%. You know, Joe, I hear what you're saying, and I don't argue against it about J.P. Morgan versus everyone else. For a few months now, I've tried to recharacterize this. I don't want to th say for a second that Citigroup is co competing with J.P. Morgan. They're light years apart. I mean, you can look at the wealth management business. You can look at the investment banking business. Citigroup's a different story. It's a restructuring story. And let's face it, this is a restructuring that has been overdue by almost 25 years, going back to when Sandy Weil built this behemoth, and it got way out of hand. Jane Frazier is the first person who has actually taken a scalpel or maybe it's a machete to getting this bank to the right size. She's taken a lot of steps in that regard. I think she's making great progress. And for Citigroup, what you're really looking for here is where are expenses headed? They're headed down. That's in the guidance. Was the quarter great? No, the quarter was bad and had all the sort of charges. But the year ahead, you're looking at expenses coming down and that's what investors in Citigroup want to see. So are you buying, are you buying Citigroup for the turnaround story, which evolves over the course of 2024, or are you buying Citigroup because you believe the turnaround is something that's going to be sustainable and you could own this the way you could own J.P. Morgan for multiple years? Yeah, again, I don't want to make the comparison to J.P. Morgan. We're just we're just talking about light years. But just purely right? on a time, thinking through ownership time frame. I do think it's sustainable to answer your question, right? These are permanent expense cuts. Just the way they, by the way, some of right. the charges, right, were international charges because they're shutting down operations in places like Russia. In the next year, year and a half, they're going to spin out the Banamex operation. These are things that do take time. But once you do something like spin out the Banamex operation, you're not going to bring it back in. So it is sustainable. And the key here, Joe, just to, the key yep. here is tangible book value. You're trading at 60% of tangible book value. That's too low. But if you're right. getting leaner as a company, is there enough revenue growth from oh, the business? Okay, yeah, the, the business yes. Just think about this one second. I was surprised to know this. Citigroup shuts its muni business. 
Citigroup shuts its distressed debt business. Yeah. I know you don't want to make the comparison to J.P. Morgan, but as an example, J.P. Morgan's actually investing in those businesses. So on the other side of a leaner city, is there enough growth yeah. engines? No, this is a great question. So in addition to not comparing the two, you got to know what Citigroup's focus is. It's on cash management. It's on treasury solutions for corporations. It's on security servicing. It's not on doing investment banking and advising one company over acquiring the other. And look, the muni business, and I know this from my family history, has been tough for decades. <laughs> it has been tough for decades. So it seems like the underlying question here is, do you believe in Jane Frazier's leadership? We'll have to wait and see uh, City shares in the red right now. But Jenny, I want to come over to you. Uncharacteristically quiet. I know you don't own any of these big banks, uh, but what did you make of some, this kind of noisy start to earnings season? Um, one thing I want to ask you about, Bank of America, big consumer bank, uh, they said net interest income decreased by 5% due to higher deposit costs and lower deposit balances. What does that say to you? So I'm thinking two things listening to this. One, the reason I was so excited to start to hear the bank's earnings is thinking about what they're going to tell us about the consumer and the health of the consumer. And it's interesting, too, because as we've been talking about the consumer, I keep thinking that there's there's different consumers out there, right? There's like the high-end consumer and they're doing fine. There's all there's lower end, like we need to be real, it's, it's bifurcated. So that's why you see things like American Express holding up, 30-day loan delinquencies there, like really low, things like Discover much higher. And I think it's interesting listening to you all talk about JP Morgan versus Citi. I know we haven't talked much about Wells yet, but there's big differences in the, in the customers of those banks and in the prospects of those banks. So what I'm really listening for are things like layoffs, because you know what? Layoffs however you cut it, are kind of bad for society. They're bad for the unemployment rate. They're bad for American for American, you know, consumers. So I'm looking for those. I'm looking at, to your point exactly, you know, the decrease in net interest income. Why is that happening? It's because, like, there's weakness out there. So I think it's very insightful from a macro perspective. But then there's another broader thing, too, which is how are these earnings get? How are we getting to these earnings? Because, again, don't forget, we're just in fourth quarter. And so fine if they made their numbers, that means 2023's S&P earnings are, are kind of signed, sealed, and delivered. But what the outlook is, is really important. And so when we see decreases at NII, and we think, all right, well, to get to analyst expectations for 2024, we need S&P earnings to grow by about 12%. This is very insightful because what they're saying so far is like, yeah, we made earnings, but there's not so much growth ahead. And so I think that worries me a little bit as we think out to the year ahead. Can we really get that 12% growth that we need, you know, or is it going to be less? I think that we will grow off of 2023's earnings collectively, not just banking, but I don't think we're going to get to that 12%. I think it'll be interesting to see where we end up. So I'm looking at this as much okay. more of a macro insight than individual bank. You know, hard to believe we didn't even talk about Wells Fargo, really. Those shares down three and a half percent but we're going to hear a lot more about the big banks next week the ceos of bank of america jp morgan blackstone goldman and morgan stanley all of them joining us live from davos coverage starts tuesday at 6 a.m eastern we're also going to hear from the city cfo coming up on closing bell later today all right the other big story we're following at this hour treasury yields on the move after today's ppi report the two-year hitting its lowest level since may let's bring in senior economics reporter steve leesman for much more steve Hey, Frank, yeah, there was a sizable reaction in markets to this wholesale price report, and all of it pointing to more pressure on the Fed to cut rates perhaps as soon as March. The producer price index came in below expectations at minus zero one, suggesting little inflationary pressure up the supply chain. 
prompting economists to estimate the Fed's preferred inflation indicator. A lot of stuff from the PPI flows into the PCE. That is, the core PCE will come in at 2.6 to call it 3% year over year, and even 1.5 to 2% on a three-month annualized basis. That is at the Fed's 2% inflation target. So what happened before the PPI, the March probability cut was high at 69%, but then it's getting towards a certainty at nearly 83% now as we're talking. Ian Shepherdson from Pantheon says the PPI is far more important than yesterday's slightly disappointing core CPI numbers. Core PCE is what matters for the Fed, and these data will increase the pressure on policymakers to ease soon. The two-year feels it and sees it down 11 basis points just on this number. A really strong reaction. Uh, the market's gotten very attuned to this PPI number and what it means for the PCE. And then look at what we've been following for a while, waiting on maybe there's going to be a disinversion of the curve. Will the 210 spread uh, at, at just minus 20 basis points? Uh, it had been uh, 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 even as, as high as, you know, 100 basis points not that long ago. But this morning, just 20 basis points to a disinversion. Uh, that's where we are now, Frank. And we'll see that number comes uh, January 26th, the PCE number. But the market's gotten really attuned to taking the PPI number, plugging it into a PCE estimate, essentially trading on that. So, Steve, I mean, I think the big question is, what does this all mean for that March possible cut that a lot of people are banking on? What about other cuts throughout the year? Okay, so this gets a little complicated, Frank. So write, it, write, it, write this down. You're going to get the February, the January report in February before the meeting, and then the PPI report comes out a few days before the Fed is going to meet or when the Fed meets in March. I'm just going to double-check that. So that we'll have some information here as to what's going on uh, well, actually, it's just, yeah, it's, it's before the Fed meets, it'll have the PPI report. So now you got to think, well, what happens now if the Fed goes in with for three months here with inflation at the target on a three or six month annualized basis? Maybe the way Powell handles it is he acknowledges the progress and then sort of gives some guidance on cuts. That may not okay. be satisfying to the market, but hey, if the market is banking on a cut, doesn't get it in March, but gets guidance in March, that may be enough. Steve, I got my pen right here. I wrote all of it down. I'm going to toss it over to Joe Terranova. He's got a chart for you. Uh, speaking of, we're showing the audience right now, two-year yield hitting its lowest level since May of 2023. Well, I, I think Steve's doing an excellent job in pointing out the importance of the two-year. We've already seen the five-year relative uh, to the 30-year and the 10-year disinvert. I think now this is the beginning stage of the disinversion for a two versus a 10-year. We've got a chart that shows we're now pressing, we're steepening back towards the minus 11 level from October of 2023. If you're right. able to see further steepening beyond that level, guess what? You're right back to July of 2022 where the disinversion was present. And I really think that's where we're going. And I think that's what the market's looking at. I don't know how Steve feels about this, but I feel as though if you were to do a poll of speculators, money managers, portfolio managers, and you would ask them, do you think it's really necessary to cut rates in March, or do you think the Federal Reserve could wait to the next meeting? I think most people would say, no, they don't need to cut in March. But the market, for some reason, with a 68% probability, is signaling that it's going to occur. And I have to tell you, uh, while I'm skeptical and suspicious of a March cut, 
I'm looking at what the market's saying, and it's leading to believe the March cut yeah. is actually going to happen. In all fairness, the market may say one thing, but Loretta Mester just yesterday, voting mm -hmm. member this year, said March probably too early. So but the market the market's has, saying one but thing, the but the actual has voting been right. members the saying something has different. been right along the way. Just right. for what it's worth, I'm looking at the CME Joe, Fed Watch right now. It's actually an 81 percent. 81. I mean, and Steve, if I can I just think come, Steve had 83 percent. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I didn't have a pen, Steve, to write down everything you were saying. So you may have to, <laughs> you may have to repeat yourself with this question, Steve. But you know, if if the Fed doesn't want that cut in March, I think you were saying that that Chair Powell at a at a press conference will will walk it back, and I don't know. In January, but don't you expect that next week you'll get some Fed speakers saying, hey, guys, no, 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 81% is not where we're going here. Or are we in the blackout period? I mean, I think the Feds, if they don't want to cut in March, they got to put this out there right now. I don't I don't think they have to. I think that I think the Fed is happy for the market to price something three months ahead of time. I think what the Fed cares about is where expectations are going into the particular meeting where the cut is expected. And what I'm suggesting, Jim, is that, you know, the, the world today is not the world that we're going to have going into the March meeting. And if you suppose, and it's a big suppose and a big if there, that if you have these kind of inflation numbers going into that March meeting, it's going to be hard for the Fed not to acknowledge that cuts are imminent. Remember, if you think of it as, as a two and a half percent nominal or sorry, long term funds rate, the Fed is really, really tight here relative to the underlying inflation rate. And Joe, the reason it matters is not for guys necessarily in the stock market. It's the folks doing the financing that care that's based on SOFR. And really only the Fed can change what SOFR is. So when you're talking about above and beyond the SOFR, whatever that spread is, if that comes down, that's going to help these corporations that are needing to refinance right now. And that's really the big underlying story to, to, to the Fed rate cuts is that these companies now are dealing with and having to refinance into these higher rates. And the question is when the Fed is going to provide that relief. And that matters a bit for, for macroeconomic outcomes as well as market outcomes. But, but as a market participant, Steve, am I correct to be focused on that 2 to 10 spread? And if I continue to see that steepening, is that my indicator that, in fact, the probability for the March cut is correct? <sighs> I, I, I don't I don't know, Joe. I don't I don't think the two ten spread is the thing that I would watch. I would listen to what folks are saying. I'd watch the inflation data. I don't think you need to go to a second derivative to know whether the Fed's going to cut. I do think it's worth thinking about what a 210 disinversion means. I think it might make some bank capital available in that their cost of short term funds uh, and the spread on lending long would now be positive for them. Yes. So that could be a positive for the economy to reinvert the curve. That's huge, Steve. Thank you for pointing that out. It's, it's yeah. vitally important as we watch all the bank stocks decline today in the face of probably the most important thing. Their net interest income is going to be buoyed by a re-steepening of the yield curve. There we go. All right, Steve, we've got to leave it there. I have my pen. I'm going to continue yeah, taking sure, notes all show. <laughs> Steve, great to see you as always. I, I wanted you to write it down so you could repeat it back to me, Frank, because I don't remember exactly the, the sequence of things. So send me an email with those dates I laid out. I mean, out. Steve, I didn't need it. You're very memorable. Steve Leisman, Senior Economics Reporter. Great to see you. <laughs> you. All right. Falling rates pushing the tech sector to another record high today. Um, hard not to talk about tech recently. Tech, the best performing sector this week. We talked about the broadening of the rally, Jim. And here we are back again with tech and even a horse race between Apple and Microsoft. I mean, so much going on in tech. 
And when I thought we were talking about small caps and industrials and cyclicals, what happened? Well, I mean, look, can I just point out a couple of things that there is a difference this year, that it's not the Magnificent Seven as a monolith moving forward. I, I talked to Brenda before the show started, and she gave me permission to mention that Tesla's having a not-so-great start to the year. Um, let me also point out that whatever Apple's doing today, it hasn't been a great start to the year. And last I looked, I'm not doing it right now, folks, NVIDIA was down. And I didn't think that was allowed in the stock market, but I think I saw that today. So, look, I, I continue to believe that this is a year that the broadening continues on the back of economic strength that gets people looking at sectors like financials, industrials, materials, and saying they're simply too cheap. They're going to keep generating cash flow and buying back shares. This doesn't mean go sell your technology. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying better returns are likely to come outside of technology. So, Brenda, what do you make of this? Um, again, we all thought the market was going to broaden, but right now we're seeing uh, you know, upgrades right now from Microsoft, or at least a reiteration of its outperformed by Wolf. Amazon's price target raised by Truist. I know you're overweight more broadly broadly when it comes to mega cap tech names. Yeah, so we're not over overweight all the mega cap tech names. We're picky in where we have our overweights. But I will say, if we look at the fundamentals and their contributions to earnings growth, it's pretty phenomenal, especially in the fourth quarter, not to be really short-term about it. But if we look at fourth quarter earnings estimates, if we strip out the mega cap eight stocks, earnings expectations are actually for a negative year-over-year -year growth rate for the Q4. So I think you know we can't ignore that these stocks are really huge contributors to overall earnings growth, and I think that's important. Also, many of them are tied to the, the evolution of AI, which is important. Uh, we can't right. ignore it, but that is a, a, a new wave of innovation coming our way. And so I do think it's important to have some exposure, but I do agree with Jim that I think we are going to continue to see a broadening of participation in the market, especially from areas like small and mid-cap. Uh, but I think we can't ignore that the, the strength of tech and the need to, in our view, continue to have some exposure to that part of the market. Jenny, agree or disagree? I know you only have a small position in Meta, but what do you think about the Mag7 and tech uh, going forward? Do you think they continue or show leadership in this brand new year? Well, I think it's magnitude of leadership that we're talking about. So I think if we think about their actual businesses and the role that those businesses play, not just in the U.S., but globally, like from that business perspective, they'll maintain their leadership for the rest of you know our natural lives. From the stock market leadership, I think it's impossible for me to make any case where they would where they would maintain, and this is a really important nuance, the magnitude of their performance leadership that they've had in the past. And so Steve and I were getting into it last week, right, because he was talking about Microsoft. I'm like, you know, it could kind of plateau, in my opinion. What do you think is behind that? What do you really think Microsoft could return next year? And he's like, it should be at the market or better. And I was like, you know what? Fair enough. I'm not going to keep arguing with you on that. And so I think as we think about the MAG-7 overall or the MAG-8, I think that's probably how we should reframe and think, okay, you know, it's not likely that they're going to be up 62% again this year like they were last year, but if they perform kind of in line with the market, that's great. And there's a really important thing to think about here too, which I bump into with a lot of my clients. So while you all know I don't own any of these except for except for um, Meta in our discipline growth strategy, we have tons of clients who have very large positions in Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon. Why? Because they've owned them for years. When they moved their accounts over to Gil Gilman Hill, they had like zero cost basis. So if you're thinking about selling Microsoft or Google or Amazon, and you've got say like a million dollars worth of these stocks, which people do, and the cost basis is essentially zero, you need to say to sell that stock, I need to expect it to go down by 23.8% because that's what the capital gains tax rate would be at that point. And so that puts this in incredible foundational floor under 
secure the continued ownership of these for a long time. So when we think about them going forward, it would be very, very hard to envision a mass sell-off. But at the same time, when we think about our portfolio, the thing I used for my final trade last week was Aptive, right? A small cap company that, sorry, mid kind of small cap company that's make, they make um, the harnesses for wires for EVs, right? But it trades at 14 times earnings with 25% earnings growth ahead. It's hard for me to imagine that that doesn't have performance leadership in the coming year. So that's where I'm struggling. Like MAG7 can be fine. It's probably stupid to sell them if you have huge capital gains, but the magnitude of leadership on a performance basis, I can't get to anything that would justify All right, it. Joe, I know you on Microsoft, you're saying don't move too far away from these mega cap names. We gotta keep moving Look, on the show though. Everyone has a, has a specific discipline. I run an equally weighted strategy. We're all looking for a broadening out of the market, right. but you have to acknowledge it has not happened so far year to date. And it's a reason why the market is so choppy, allowing the algos to be in control. All right, coming up next here on Half, we're hitting more of today's big movers. That includes Delta, United Health, and DocuSign. We've got ownership in all of these names. We debate those trades. Halftime back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. As you can see, the Dow down 200 points. Welcome back to Halftime Report. Let's hit some committee stocks that are on the move. We're starting with Delta Airlines. Shares lower despite beating on earnings. The company lowering guidance for the year. Jim, you just added Delta earlier this week. Yeah, this um, share price movement is absolutely a head fake. It is an outsized response that I expect to be reversed. And here's why. Uh, first off, pre-cash flow last year, $2 billion. They're guiding to $3.5 billion uh, at the midpoint for this year. So three and a half billion, that's you know, pretty sizable, 75% increase year over year. Uh, by the way, the free cash flow guidance and the earnings per share guidance are exactly where the analyst community was going into this print. So it's not like the analyst community is surprised. The reason the shares are down, two reasons. One, whenever you get a headline like this, the algos sell it down. But also, let's face it, when you have airstrikes in the Middle East like you did last night, I don't care who was reporting today, the airlines were gonna be down on the threat of high 
higher oil. In the meantime, what you've got in Delta is a stock trading at six times earnings, growing earnings, trading at a free cash flow yield of 16%. Uh, and by the way, that six times multiple, traditionally, it should be eight times with the demand that you're seeing projected by Ed Bastian, the CEO. I fully expect it will get back to eight times uh, earnings. So I see a 33% growth rate from here to year end. All right, Jim, we have another one for you. Uh, this one's United Health. Shares are lower after reporting higher than expected Q4 medical costs. What's your take on this one? Yeah, obviously, I don't like to hear the you know the concept of higher medical costs. It was a bad quarter, and when you're investing in any company, any quarter can bring anything. It can bring upside in revenues, it can be upside in, in expenses, which obviously happened this quarter on the expense side. What you've got is people are coming back to medical procedures still that they delayed during the pandemic, and that's what caused the increase this quarter. That is not likely to continue. Company guidance is such that for the full year, they do not expect elevated medical claims. Uh, so I'm really not worried about United Healthcare here. Just a bad quarter. All right, moving to another one. We're talking DocuSign. Shares moving higher on reports of a PE takeout. Jenny, you own this one. We do. So we added this a few months ago at $42 a share. And this was one where we sifted through the rubble kind of of the fallout of 22, sifted through those Zooms and the DocuSigns. And when you looked at it, you're like, wow, this is just really cheap. It has real earnings. It has real cash flow. The share should not be trading at $42 a share. So it's interesting because when we bought it, we didn't think that this was going to be the catalyst to drive shares higher. All we thought was there's tremendous free cash flow generation, unbelievable barriers to entry, and that that just says there's value in the stock that's not being appreciated. But then when you think of that, right, high barrier to entry, lots of free cash flow, like, of course it was private equity who was going to start to get interested. So, you know, I'll take it. It's a fabulous company. The growth potential is unbelievable. Joe, I know you used to own this used stock. Used to own the company. What do you think of this report? Uh, the question that I have, I don't know, Jenny, you might know the answer, is what type of premium do you think this company will be acquired at? Ooh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> that's, that's, a a big, that's, a, that's a big question. That, yeah. That's the huge I mean, question. That, and also, what the if question. they join forces, that obviously will lower the premium because you won't have two competing bidders. Right, yeah. correct. And, and that's important to understand where we are now. Um, how significant is that premium? What is that going to look like ultimately? And that's going to allow you to uh, determine what you're going to do from it. From here. From, from here. Mm -hmm. All right. Stocks at, what, almost 64, 64. right now? Jenny, when did, what did you get into it at? 42. All right. So, so for the, you. Right. So when you say, like, what's, you know, what's the premium? I'm like, wow, it's already a exceeded what our, we thought our one-year price target would be so dramatically. And that's tricky work, I think, to go back and say, realistically, you know, what are the, with a, like, you're putting a, you're going old school value investing in a way and saying, like, what's the private market value that this thing should trade at? It's, I don't know. Like, I could wing it and just say 70, you know, but I think it's closer to where it should be right now. All right. DocuSign up over 4% on news of a private equity takeout. Time now for headlines. We're going to toss it over to our Pippa Stevens. Pippa. Hey, Frank. The Biden administration is pushing the Supreme Court to step in on its border fight with Texas. In a filing today, the administration accused Texas of adding walls and wire to the border in an effort to keep the border patrol from doing its job. The filing also claimed Texas's actions were limiting agents' ability to respond to emergencies. It argues the changing conditions show the court needs to intervene quickly. The IRS collected another $360 million in overdue taxes from the rich as a result of modernizing the agency using funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. In a call with reporters, the agency said in addition to taxes recouped in October, 
Nearly half a billion dollars have been recouped from rich tax cheats. And the highway to the danger zone just got a little more crowded. According to Puck News, Paramount is bringing back the team behind Top Gun Maverick for a third installment of the franchise. The series has been successful for the studio, with Top Gun Maverick bringing in over a billion dollars at the box office. Frank, back to you. All right, our Pippa Stevens back at CNBC headquarters. Pippa, thank you. All right, coming up next, our calls of the day. A lot of analyst action this Friday, including a price target hike for one of last year's big tech winners, plus upgrades in materials, biotech, and much more. The committee debates it all when halftime returns. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome back to the Halftime Report. Let's get to our calls of the day. Uber touching a new record intraday high today. And Wells Fargo thinks it can go even higher. The firm boosting its price target by 2 bucks to $76 a share. Jenny, you own Uber, but you've actually been trimming it lately. Right. So we bought it uh, a year and change ago, 2022. We paid 22 bucks for it, put it in as a 3% position. So if we were still holding that whole position, it would be way over 7%. And that's just too much. This is in our discipline growth, disciplined growth strategy. So we always employ a lot of discipline. It's actually the third time we trimmed it. So we've trimmed it at 47, 50, 50, you know, 58, 59 last week. And I think that's just responsible. So here we sit with a three and change percent position. I think their price target is a little too aggressive, you know, for the next year or so. I think maybe like high 60s is more realistic. And that's where you get into, okay, if we get to the high 60s, there's 10% upside between here and your end. That is excellent. I love 10% upside. But I think there's other things in the portfolio that could easily return more than 10%. So let's take that nice return they've given us, diversify a little bit, reinvest into things with more than 10%, and maintain a balanced portfolio. So that's all that is, is that selling. Look, the prospects are still amazing for that company. Joe, you own as well. Uh, Still bullish on this name? Absolutely. I think today, at one point, the the intraday high is an all-time high for Uber. Uh, I see the stock clearly going into the 70s. I did a little trimming in Uber as well. Uh, but this is this is a, an industrial growth story. And to get the type of revenue growth that this company delivers, the type of balance sheet that you're owning and in owning this company, and then just the overall necessity for the consumer um, and for professionals in the utilization of, of Uber, I see this stock clearly well into the 70s. All right, Uber shares fractionally lower right now. We're going to turn to Cleveland Cliffs, upgraded to overweighted J.P. Morgan. The analysts there citing greater focus on shareholder returns. Jim, you own this one. Yeah, and you know the analyst is returning to the stock from an unrated uh, position uh, while J.P. Morgan was advising Cleveland Cliffs and the whole U.S. Steel takeover drama. Uh, but he's coming back, and it's a fresh voice to say what we all know. There is a tremendous amount of cash flow generation going on at Cleveland Cliffs. Hot rolled coil prices are very high. They were $700 a ton just a few months ago. Now they're almost $1,100 a ton. You've got good volume picking up from auto demand picking up. Uh, CapEx expenses are low and going lower, at least for this 
year uh, because they front-loaded last year and the year before those expenses. So the cash flow generation is going to be tremendous. Their debt level is already so low. So what can they do other than just give it back to shareholders via share buybacks that they announced would be sizable? We'll see that when we get the fourth quarter earnings report in a few weeks. All right. So Cleveland Cliffs is also a read on commodities. Brenda, I know you own a commodity fund. What's your take on commodities in general, the whole complex, especially with what we're seeing in China? Yeah, so we uh, we maintained an overweight in commodities in our allocation back in 2022. This last year, we really spent our, you know a lot of time trimming back the commodities exposure because we felt like there was more opportunity in traditional stocks and bonds. So we're still about halfway. I think it's important to have a little bit of exposure. But when we think about where overall appreciation really lies, in our mind, it's much easier to get our heads around making a story for traditional stocks and bonds from here rather than the commodity complex, especially in an environment where China's growth is slow. Moving over to Regeneron, RBC calling the company one of the most dynamic all-around stories in large-cap biotech. It also says there's more than meets the eye when it comes to this stock. Regeneron is trading at a new record high today. Joe, you own this one in the Joe T ETF. Yeah, clearly that analyst report uh, identifies all you need to know about this company fundamentally. It is a very well-diversified large-cap biopharma with delivering on significant revenue growth. But this is a classic example of how momentum in markets actually does work. This is a name that has been in the ETF since January of 2022. The momentum is incredibly strong, even in an environment where healthcare was underperforming. All right. Moving on, City is bullish on Qualcomm, upgrading the stock to buy and boosting its target to 160 from 110. Back over to you, Jim. You're in this one. Yeah, well, let's admit there have been a lot of false dawns in terms of the mobile phone market bottoming and picking up. Um, hopefully, what I'm about to say won't add to that series, but it does look like the mobile phone market has bottomed and is slowly going to pick up this year. Obviously, that helps Qualcomm, which provides chips into mobile phones, but also the automotive industry, which I mentioned before, is producing a lot of cars, restocking inventory. Uh, that's a that's a key growth area for Qualcomm. And as the economy continues to expand, their Internet of Things business should be going well. Last thing on Qualcomm, besides the valuation, eventually um, AI applications are going to take place on the phone. And that's going to play very strongly to Qualcomm's strengths. All right. A lot to watch there. Uh, those shares up a third of a percent right now. Price target raised to 160 by city. Coming up, we have our chart of the day, a big pop for one commodity that's on track for its second straight positive week. Now the committee is playing it. That's coming up next on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Our chart of the day, it's oil hitting 75 bucks a barrel in early trading. That's the highest level since December. Joe, you're our resident energy expert, starting with you. I mean, it's so confusing to explain what's going on right now in oil. Oil is back to 7250 as we speak. 75, uh, 75 and a quarter, I believe, was the high earlier today. Um, the price action is is just not correlating with what we're seeing surrounding the geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Um, it's somewhat discouraging as someone who is overweight energy. Quite candidly, I'm more excited and believe the better investment opportunity resides in natural gas. Certainly, as we, we heard about uh, the deal yesterday with Chesapeake and, and Southwest. Right. And you're seeing all these deals over the last four months, $130 billion worth of energy equity deals. So is it really translating, though, in terms of performance for the energy equities? I'm not necessarily sure that it is. And it seems as though 
These deals are happening because obviously companies are trying to utilize the cash that they have on their balance sheet that they're not reinvesting into the wellhead to actually go out and buy the production. So it's it's really, there's a lot of complexity right now going on in the energy right. space. And it's very difficult for those watching the show to try and make a decision based on what the spot price of oil is doing, right. because the spot price of oil is acting in a very erratic way. Yeah, it seems like it would be higher with so much geopolitical tensions. I mean, military action, by the way, Jenny Harrington right here, just waving. Come over Richard, to me. Come I'm over to preaching. me. Uh, what's the matter? What <laughs> just I want to educate wrong? everybody. No, no, energy transfer like, like Morgan, <laughs> Pioneer Shell, some of your holdings. Right. Go ahead. Go in. So, so I actually don't think it's any mystery at all that they haven't performed. But you need to take a three-year, almost four-year now, look in the rearview mirror to understand why they're not. Because go back to four years ago, right, energy actually traded negative. The stocks were completely in the dumps. Right. Nobody believed we'd ever see 70 to 90 dollar oil again. Share prices run up. So we had that plus 50 percent move in 2021 plus 60 percent in 2022. They had their move. You know, stocks have their move. And what they did during that time was they incorporated what 70 to 90 dollar oil looked like. Like, yeah, it got a little higher for a while. But the reality is and, and I think this has been very much the conversation for some time is oil is range bound and is range bound in the 70 to 90 per 90 dollar range. And the reason being supply demand is simple, right? And OPEC has lost its control over some amount of it. So, you know, the suppliers are just going to pump a little more. They're going to ignore that they want to keep it closer to 90. We find that around 70, that's where it starts. If it gets below 70, it starts to hurt. So you've got an actually very high functioning supply demand relationship keeping oil in that range. And in 70 to 90, that's where the free cash flow modeling, you know, to get to the prices that they're at today works. So as you guys know, I sold Chevron about this time last year at about $178 a share. Haven't looked back on that. And, and Frank, when you okay. read off what's in the portfolio, it's mostly in the midstream space. Why? Because I think there you can earn really consistent returns and not have to live and die on what the commodity prices are trading at. So for our clients who don't mind K1s, which, by the way, I think that's the best way to go. We own energy um, transfer and enterprise products. That's like a 9 and an almost 8% yield. For people who hate K1s in the midstream, we own Kinder, One Oak, Williams. Those are all closer to the 6% range. But it's, it's a nice way to be in that space. You'll get a little bit of capital appreciation a lot of income, and then in the international total on shell, which just right. straight up traded a huge discount to their domestic deals. Jenny Harrington with real, the real, energy soliloquy. we got to run because we got Mike Santoli <laughs> in here, but the soliloquy. All right, real quick on the Very spot quick. price of oil, okay? You have to be careful, and Jenny just validated the point. You cited the price of oil going negative in 2020. Forget that. That was a function of expiration. Okay, by the end of the year, by the end of the year, no, by the end of the year, it's back to $50 by the end of 2020. So low. the point is, the point is, don't utilize the spot price of oil to dictate what your energy ah. investment okay. can okay, be. Wait, we got to leave it there, Jen. We got to leave it there. Coming okay. up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. If you didn't get it in before, I don't know what else you got to say. Later, more key names reporting next week. We're including one big semi-stock, Halftime, back right after this. And we are back on Halftime. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Hey, Mike. Hey, Frank. Yeah, so, you know, this prolonged pause continues. We're sort of tantalizingly close to the S&P 500 uh, all-time high. Uh, but it's tough to find too much fault after the sprint we had in, in late uh, fourth quarter. So I'm looking at, you know, the median stock is, is down a little on the year, even as the S&P uh, has kind of more or less held in there. And um, trying to find fault with what's happening. Maybe there's still some unfinished business. You know, we have seen the small caps roll over against everything else. I think the big story today is the 
increasing conviction that disinflation is fully in train and we have some confidence around that. The bond market is, is getting pretty aggressive as, as it's rallying here uh, and is going to invite the Fed to have the Fed funds rate catch down to things like the two-year note yield. So I think that's a, a little bit of the, uh, the drama that we go into the weekend with. Uh, what did you make of today's PPI report? Uh, we had Steve Leesman on earlier saying, you know, it could lead to this, it could lead to that. Just very quick, what's your take? I mean, I think in general, it, it checks off the box to say that wholesale inflation is going the right way, which feeds into the Fed's PCE uh, measure of inflation. It's hard to get too alarmed about it. I think the burden of proof is on people who think inflation is going to stay high and sticky. All right, Mike Santoli with his midday word. Mike, thank you very much. All right, coming up, the setup for more big earnings coming our way next week. We're going to hit one key semi-stock plus some transport names. Halftime will be right back after this break. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Earnings season picks up steam next week. We're going to get results from Interactive Brokers, Taiwan Semi, J.B. Hunt, and much more. Let's get this set up. We're going to start off with Interactive Brokers. Joe, you own it personally and as well as in the Joe T ETF. Very strong risk on sentiment in Q4. I think that's going to be reflected in revenue growth year on year for this company, somewhere around 20%. Net interest income will be very strong as well. You could probably see that figure close to 30% as well. So it's uh, it's a stock that I recently purchased personally while it is in the Joe T ETF and I'm comfortable continuing to own it given the improvement in sentiment and the capital market environment. Yeah, I think we also got to talk about Taiwan Semi. I know nobody owns it. Jenny, you used to own it. But uh, any thoughts about Taiwan Semi? So there's some macro issues, the Taiwanese elections, and also Taiwan Semi, uh, one of the biggest uh, foundry chip makers, uh, a big read on the chip sector. I know. It's such a hard one. And we were actually talking to a client this week on the phone who owns Alibaba. And one of the, and so we own Taiwan Semi. You know, way back, I actually owned it in the dividend income strategy. Then we owned it in the international strategy for years, sold it. The return was unbelievable when we eventually sold it. But it's one of those things that we reflect on now. And we're just so happy to not be invested in that region because um, it is pretty scary and it is uncomfortable. And you, you and for as phenomenal a company as that is, and their management board leadership is extraordinary, but to some degree, like you just can't get away from the political risk there. So I don't want to be part of it. Yeah. Speaking of that political risk, uh, Brenda, what's your thoughts on Taiwan Semi and also the possible impact to the broader tech sector? Sure. Well, I think we'll hear more about the the inventory issue and whether we've passed that this year and looking forward if things are getting better on that front. Also should hear a bit more about AI. So I think there are some things to listen for that will have broader implications for the whole group um, outside of the political risks. Um, so I think it's an important one to pay attention to, even for those who don't own it. Just because of their, their key part in the chip supply chain, do you think this mm -hmm. is a read to the broader chip sector? I think we'll get a look at you know smartphone demand, whether that's starting to pick up or not. Um, so I think there will be some read through um, to other areas in understanding whether we've worked through the inventory um, buildup that would have happened this past year and whether we're on the other side of that or not. All right, Taiwan's going to be basically flat. Uh, again, Taiwanese presidential and parliamentary elections coming up this weekend. All right, stay with us on halftime. Final trades from the committee coming up.
All right, welcome back to halftime. Time now for final trades. Jenny, you're up first. Okay, Crown Castle. It is a cell tower and small cell provider. I bought this last June when the stock had been cut from 200 back down to 113. So now you can get in at a 5.5% yield. Same thing I paid for it last June. But the thing is, they're, they always had an 8 to 9% consistent growth rate. They're getting closer to getting back to that. So be patient, but own it for a while. Joe T. Marathon Petroleum, energy equities last year, one of the leaders. Once again this year, one of the leading energy names. Brenda. Stryker had a great year this past year, but think it's poised for another great year, especially as hospital balance sheets improve, and that should improve adoption of their smart robotics system. Jim, last word. AbbVie, you know, a lot of us have talked about healthcare coming back as a leader this year. AbbVie has led for quite some time. Great valuation, great dividend yield. All right, that is it for halftime. The exchange starting right now. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that... That's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.